Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon, and it's great to be with you as always on a Wednesday afternoon. Today is the 24th of Cheshvan, the 8th of November. Today is actually the yacht site of Baron Edmund Rothschild, who was one of the great Jewish leaders in the early 20th century, late 19th century. He was born in 1845. He died in 1934 on this day. He was a member of the Rothschild banking dynasty, and uh, he preferred to pursue artistic interests, acquiring an important collection of drawings and engravings that he later bequeathed to the Louvre in Paris. In 1882, Rothschild became a leading proponent proponent of the Zionist movement, buying land throughout um, the area of Eretz Israel and subsidizing many Jewish settlements. He financed the first new Jewish town called Rishon Lezion, the first of Zion, as well as Zichron Yaakov. Um, he also financed Caesarea, Caesarea, and some 30 under other settlements in the land of Israel. And uh, remember, in the 1880s, it's when pogroms in Eastern Europe um, were very extensive, and there was a lot of persecution against the Jews in Eastern Europe. And uh, Jews in their droves left the shores of Eastern Europe. Many went to the United States. Many went to um, the UK. Uh, many came here to South Africa, although in smaller numbers, but many did come to South Africa, many from Lithuania, and many went to Eretz Israel. Many were encouraged by the opportunity of these new settlements that were set up by Baron de Rothschild. And he even established Israel's wine industry when he helped many Jews from Eastern Europe flee the pogroms and plant vineyards in Israel. In 1954, Rothschild's remains were reinterred to Israel. And to honor his memory, his son paid for the construction of the Knesset building in Yerushalayim. So our current Knesset building was built by his son in memory of his father. It's actually at this time also that many more Arabs came into Eretz Israel from the surrounding countries because there was new economic opportunity. And in particular, the, the estimate of the current population, Arab population in Israel, about 40% of them actually came after that time, um, after World War One, when the land of Israel was uh, taken from the Ottoman Empire, the occupation of the Ottoman Empire, and was given to, um, was controlled by the British Mandate. So they say 40 to 50 percent of the current Arab population in Israel came at that time um, because there was added economic opportunity under the British Mandate. So of course, as we know, throughout that time, there have been um, Jews in the land of Israel. We have been in the land of Israel since Abraham Avinu. And since um, the, the, the real establishment of the Jewish people in the land of Israel was when Yahushua, Joshua entered the land in 1300 before the Common Era. And ever since then, um, Eretz Israel has been the center of the Jewish people, has been the homeland of the Jewish people. And um, David HaMelech established his capital 
in Jerusalem in the year 1000 before the common era, more than 3000 years ago. And ever since then, Eretz Israel has been the homeland of the Jewish people. So these current claims that we're stealing lands from the Palestinian people, that we have no right to the land, it's not our land, is absolutely false, is, is absolutely um, a fabrication um, of history. And uh, it, it, there's so much archaeological evidence supporting our being in the land, supporting David HaMelech, Shlomo HaMelech, David King Solomon, first temple, second temple. The Jews have been in the land for thousands of years, and it has always been our homeland and always will be our homeland, and we have every right to be in the land of Israel. So that's today. Today is the 24th of Cheshvan, the yacht site of Baron Edmund de Rothschild, who did so much to build up and the Jewish people in the land of Israel and uh, assist the fleeing masses from Eastern Europe, the terrible pogroms that were taking place at that time. Tomorrow, the 26th of Cheshvan, is also a significant date in the Hebrew calendar. For a few, actually, the 26th of Cheshvan is significant, and tomorrow is the 9th of November, which is the, 80, the, the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht. Um, so firstly, let's just refer to it's an interesting historical fact that in, in 1938 on the 26th of Cheshvan, um, in that year it was a little bit after the 9th of November, so Father Kochlin was a very well-known Roman Catholic priest from Michigan, and he had a famous radio show um, in America as one of the first um, – Evangelists to preach via the mass media. At its peak in the 1930s, his radio show had a listening audience estimated to be one-third of the nation in America, which is quite unbelievable. But Cochrane's broadcasts became increasingly anti-Semitic, expressing sympathy for Hitler and promoting the protocols of the elders of Zion, which, by the way, by the way Hamas does as well, Part of their charter refers to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a conspiracy about Jews controlling the world and determining the future of the world and exploiting the population of the world with powerful Jewish bankers and powerful Jewish uh, control of the media, which is, of course, is a conspiracy. It's absolute nonsense. But that was very much pushed, pushed by the Nazis, by Hitler, and is doing uh, likewise by Hamas. So our enemies seem to hold on to these conspiracies, which are completely false. Um, it was um, only a few weeks after Kristallnacht that uh, Father Cochlin um, referred to these terrible, um, the, the terrible events of Kristallnacht by saying that it was the Jews' fault. In other words, he blamed Kristallnacht on the Jews, which is quite unbelievable. So we'll be back in a moment and we'll discuss a little bit more about Kristallnacht, a little bit more about what's going on in the world today with regards to the Jewish people. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So tomorrow is the 9th of November, the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht, which is otherwise known as Night of the, it means Night of the Broken Glass, also known as the November Pogrom, 
was a pogrom against Jews carried out by the Nazi party's paramilitary, which was the SA and the SS, and also Hitler Youth, with with fair amount of participation of German civilians. It took place on the 9th and 10th of November 1938. The German authorities looked on without intervening as these pogroms spread across Germany. Um, The name Kristallnacht, literally meaning crystal night, comes from the shards of broken glass that littered the streets after the windows of Jewish-owned businesses, buildings, and synagogues were smashed. The pretext for the attacks was the assassination of the German diplomat Ernst von Roth by Herschel Greenspan, a 17-year-old German-born Polish Jew living in Paris. Jewish homes, hospitals, and schools were ransacked as attackers demolished buildings with sledgehammers, rioters destroyed 267 synagogues throughout Germany, Austria, and Sudetenland. 267 synagogues were destroyed. Unbelievable. Over 7,000 Jewish businesses were damaged or destroyed, and 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and incarcerated in concentration camps. British historian Martin Gilbert, who passed away recently, wrote that no event in the history of German Jews between 1933 and 1945 was so widely reported as it was happening. And the accounts from foreign journalists working in Germany drew worldwide attention. The Times of London observed on the 11th of November 1938, no foreign propagandist bent upon blackening Germany before the world could outdo the tale of burnings and beatings of blackguardly assaults and defenseless and innocent people with the, which disgraced the country yesterday. Estimates of fatalities caused by the tax have been varied. Early reports estimated that 91 Jews were murdered. Modern analysts of German scholarly sources put the figure much higher when deaths from post-arrest maltreatment and subsequent suicides are included. The death toll reaches the hundreds, estimating 638 deaths by suicide, which was a uh, wide, so widespread because it, it made very real to German Jews that the uh, Nazi rhetoric wasn't just theoretical, but actually the Nazis were hell-bent on destroying the Jews, as they had been saying. It was the first display of violence and um, cruelty to the Jews on such a wide scale that many German Jews who had loved Germany, and Germany was, they were Germans before they were Jews, so their world view was completely shattered together with the glass of their synagogues and of their businesses, and that caused so many Jews to commit suicide. Historians view, view Kristallnacht as a prelude to the final solution and the murder of six million Jews during the Holocaust. And it's important that we remember history in the world, and it's important that we understand what's happened to the Jewish people in the last hundred years. So we started out that yesterday was uh, the yacht site of Baron Edmund de Rothschild who built many settlements in Israel for Jews who were fleeing the pogroms of Eastern Europe and um, coming to Eretz Israel. Today we remember the 85-year anniversary of Kristallnacht. And these events are important because we see in the world around us today a repeat of this pattern. And we see many protests on the streets of major cities in the West 
and on the campuses of the most prominent universities in the Western world, unbelievable anti-Semitic um, behavior and protests. It's what Alan Dershowitz calls the Hitler youth of our day, of our times, of modern times. And we see the ferocity and the anger and the lies that are spewed by these protesters. And it's, it's very disconcerting, very upsetting. Just yesterday, a Jewish man was murdered by a, a protest that was taking place, a pro-Palestinian protest taking place in Los Angeles, of all places. Um, and we see how the Western press has, has actually reported on that incident. Elderly Jewish man dies from confrontation. That's how the headlines were in most newspapers and news outlets. But they didn't report the facts. The facts because they're trying to protect their narrative. The facts are that he was attacked by a pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas uh, protester who hit him with a megaphone and uh, he died. The coroner's report is that he died from a head wound, from the trauma of a head wound. And so um, either it's from the 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 uh, the uh, the weapon that was used to hit him or from falling onto the pavement as a result of that blow. So we see that these anti-Semitic attacks are back, that the anti-Semitism of the 30s has returned and that the world is turning against the Jewish people in a completely unjustified fa fashion. Just as the lies of the protocols of the elders of Zion are complete fabrications and conspiracies, so too much of what is said about the Middle East is as much a fabrication and lie. Because the facts are not at all what these protesters are screaming about. And I think it's important that we talk about these things and that we understand the facts. We have discussed it previously and it's so important that we continue to discuss these things. Because the facts really speak for themselves. And Israel is accused of being an apartheid state, which it certainly is not, with 20% of Israel's population being Arab, um, over 2 million Arabs that have full rights in Israel and are represented in all areas of Israeli society, including the Knesset, including the Supreme Court. So that's a lie. Israel is not an apartheid state. That Israel is stealing Palestinian lands and is guilty of ethnic cleansing and genocide against the Palestinians. That is an absolute lie. That is complete um, fabrication and a, a anti-Semitic accusation that is false. Israel is not interested in oppressing Palestinians. Israel is not interested in the suffering of the Palestinian people. Israel more than anything wants to make peace and has displayed that will many, many times. There are five times that Israel has, the Palestinians have been offered a two-state solution. Yes, a two-state solution. And each time they've refused. And um, it's not, they haven't refused because of lack of compromise on Israel's side. And Israel prepared to give up um, uh, much of their security and to make huge concessions in order for the Palestinians to have an independent state. Um, the only thing Israel asks in return is what? is the Palestinians put down their weapons, recognize Israel's right to exist, and make peace. That's all they're offering or asking for in return. 
and each time that is refused, and each time the Palestinians go back to violence. And then we have this terrible, unthinkable massacre of the 7th of October, just a month ago, just over a month ago. And it's just unbelievable how the world has reacted to it. There was a ceasefire. Now they want a ceasefire, the chutzpah. They want a ceasefire. There was a ceasefire. There was Israel was attacked unprovoked. And we, you have thousands of Hamas, not militants, as reported in the left-wing media, of terrorists coming into Israel and attacking innocent civilians, murdering men, women, and children, uh, cutting off the limbs of children. The barbarism is unthinkable and unspeakable, murdering babies in front of their parents, raping women, taking 240 uh, people as hostages into Gaza. We can only imagine what kind of a treatment those people have, have are facing and have faced. It's just unbelievable. And then, that firstly, many people in the world say that these are AI-generated you know, images that we are seeing. They come from the GoPro cameras of the terrorists themselves. They come from the footage of the CCTV. It's, it's, you know, and, and they say that, that these are fabrications. Unbelievable the lies that the Arab world and that Hamas spread to Western media. And Western media, they lap it up. They take it up because it fits into their narrative. So I think there's two very important points that I'd like to make over here. One is, that the Muslim world is always going to support Hamas and support these atrocities and support the this so-called cause of freedom for the Palestinians and uh, liberation of the Palestinian lands because it is a basic tenant in Islam to redeem lands that were once controlled by Muslims and are no longer controlled by Muslims. Any person who knows anything about Islam understands that that is a big part of the religion. The One of the important tenets of Islam is to conquer the world and dominate the world. You know, it's quite ironic. Israel is accused of being a colonialist power, but Islam is a colonialist religion. And much of the lands that are controlled are Muslim states were colonized by the Muslims in the 7th century. Now, that's a fact of history. You can check that up yourself, that uh, the Muslims spread from the Arabian Peninsula, both east and west, and colonized many lands and turned them into Muslim lands that they are still today. But it's a very important part of Islam to liberate lands from infidels that have now taken control of lands that were once controlled by Muslims. There was never, ever a Palestinian state in Israel never Palestinian state, and the Palestinians are a recent historical occurrence. Uh, the Jews have been there for thousands of years, way before Islam was even born, as we've discussed. Um, and uh, there were some Bedouins in the area. Many more came in the uh, at the end of the 19th century because there's more economic opportunity and in the 20th century because of the economic opportunity. These are not people that have been there for thousands of years. That's another lie that is perpetrated by um, by the media. So, so on the one hand, you have the Muslim world, which is always going to support the jihad and the liberation of these lands that were controlled by Muslims, which was under the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans controlled, the Turks controlled Palestine as part of their large empire throughout Europe. And uh, it, uh, the land of Israel was part of that. And so that's when it was under Muslim rule until 
the end of World War One, which where, where the Turks sided with the Germans and they were defeated by the Allies, and then at the Treaty of Versailles, that land was was controlled by Britain, and that's when there was the Balfour Declaration that Britain promised the Jews a land of their own, and they gave in, in 1920 Transjordan was given to the Arabs to placate the Arabs, so there would be a section given to the Jews, a section given to the Arabs, so each would have their own independent country, and that's where Jordan comes from, by the way. So, um, so firstly, we have to realize that Muslims around the world are going to answer this call and to rally around the jihad of liberating Palestine from the infidels, from the Jews. And so it's not a surprise that Muslim students all over the world, that Muslim citizens in Europe, which is a very large number, there's, there's a huge Muslim population throughout Europe um, and all over the world. And they certainly are going to answer the a call to rally and to protest. But they, there's, there's this very strange um, alliance. It's called the Red-Green Alliance between the, the Muslim fundamentalists, which is green, and the woke left-wing movement, um, which are liberals in Western society. So one would not usually put them together because... Uh, the Muslim world, the fundamentalist Muslim world, is not very patient and tolerant of many of the causes um, in the woke movement. So, for example, um, trans people or homosexuals do not last very long in Muslim societies. They, uh, homosexual people are thrown off buildings, and so are trans people. So, but interestingly, that they're coming together. Why? Because the Muslim world very cleverly has framed the plight of the Palestinians as a classic example of racism and colonialism from the West. They frame it in a way that the Jews who are white and the Jews who are wealthy are oppressing the poor brown Palestinian people. And so we see a clear example of colonialism all over again, those evils of the 19th century, um, which were perpetrated by Western powers on the innocent colonial people, which were essentially racist attempts to dominate and to and to steal the resources from different countries around the world. And so we see the same thing is happening in Israel, that the white Jews are dominating and are and are um, and are taking advantage of and persecuting the brown Arab population, the Palestinians. So that's how they framed it. And the, of course, the left woke world laps that up very, very quickly and, and takes on that narrative. And so do, you know, the, the students that are fighting for the rights of basic human rights of people around the world take on that cause and the celebrities do as well. But it's, it's lazy and it's false and it's dishonest and it's anti-Semitism. These things are, um, are, are, the, Completely inaccurate. Any student of history understands that that's not the case over here. That's not true. And that it's not the, the struggle in Israel is not a battle between oppressed people against a colonialist imperialist power. That's not what's going on in Israel. And Israel would very quickly, immediately give the Palestinians their own independent state. As they did in 2005, they gave Gaza back to the Palestinians without any conditions. They removed any Jewish, um, any Jewish inhabitants, any Jewish vestige of any Jewish settlement in Gaza. They even took the graves of Jews buried there out of 
um, Gaza, of, of that whole area of the Gaza Strip, and the Palestinians were free to rule without any conditions. And what did they do? They were, the next year, Hamas was voted in with a landslide victory, over 60% of the vote. And Hamas is not a political movement for the liberation of Palestinian lands. It's a religious movement for the holy jihad liberating Muslim lands from the infidels. And that's very clear from Hamas's charter. That's very clear from every statement Hamas makes. That's very clear from the behavior of Hamas. Is there a religious movement not interested in a political solution to a struggle for emancipation and for self-determination of a people, they are fighting a holy war against the infidels. And that's why we see they do what they do. That's why they're not interested in negotiating with Israel. They're not interested in finding a compromise in which both sides make concessions. The only concession Israel is asking for is put your weapons down and let's make peace. That's all Israel is asking for. They're not interested in that because they're fighting a holy jihad. So that's on the, the, it's very clear that that's what's going on. And it's very clear that the work left-wing liberal world supports that because they fooled into thinking that it is a narrative of a oppressed people, uh, an, a brown oppressed people at the hands of the racist colonialists. But that's not accurate at all. That's not what's going on. And therefore, it's unfair to make these demands on Israel. Israel has to defend herself. Israel has to destroy Hamas, has to wipe out Hamas. If Israel doesn't wipe out Hamas, there's an existential threat, threat to every single Jew in Israel. The 7 million Jews in Israel face the danger of the Arab world destroying them, which is the, the wish of the Arab world, the, of the Muslim world. There's no question about it. It's obvious and clear. And, uh, you know, based on the statements, the very open, clear statements of the Arab world. And if Israel shows weakness, and after what Hamas has done a month ago on the 7th of October, those massacres of innocent Israelis and Jews, if Israel lets them carry on, so that's an indication to the Muslim world that they're weak. And Iran will be emboldened and Hezbollah will be emboldened and Israel face an existential threat of being wiped out. And so they have to destroy Hamas and that's exactly what they're doing. And these pleas of Western diplomats and of liberal um, uh, human rights advocates around the world for a ceasefire and for Israel and for um, you know the the suffering of the Palestinian people, and of, of course we, we don't want suffering of anybody. We don't want any civilians to be hurt. Israel has no interest in that. On the contrary, they go to great efforts to try and and minimise civilian casualties. Unlike Hamas, who hides behind their civilians, which is a war crime in, in and of itself. But Israel has no choice but to carry on and destroy Hamas and uh, make sure that this doesn't happen again. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So it's very important as Jews, we understand the justice of our cause. We understand that we're used to the world being against us. And we have, we have every right to defend ourselves in the land of Israel. And it's imperative that we destroy Hamas. Otherwise, we are in grave danger of emboldening our enemies and facing a, a, uh, a war on a massive scale against um, particularly Iran, who is orchestrating all of these attacks, both from the north and the south. Um, Hamas and Hezbollah are pawns of Iran, and Iran is 
calling all the shots over here. And we're very fortunate that the United States is standing by Israel. And uh, every civilized country needs to do so, needs to stand. It's, it's a, this is a battle between good and evil. This is a battle between um, the forces of morality and Judeo-Christian values against um, evil fundamentalists who want to uh, commit genocides against Jewish people from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free, which means that Jews will be massacred, murdered, ethnic cleansed, and wiped out from the land of Israel. And they're not going to stop over there. And uh, one can see Muslim clerics are openly speaking about it. So first the lands that were controlled by Muslims will be controlled by Muslims again, meaning Israel, meaning Spain, and then they'll move on to the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. And unless the West wakes up and stops this fundamentalist Muslim um, attack on on uh, the democracies of the West, so it will be too late, and they'll succeed in their goal of the great caliphate, like uh, the goal of ISIS, and they will take over the entire world. They'll take over Western society. And if we're naive, and if we're soft, and if we do not realize this reality, uh, many say it's already too late in Europe, um, and uh, it's not too late in the United States, but it's important that we realize what we're dealing with, with the reality. Wish it wasn't so. We all do want to have peace and work together and have coexistence of different cultures and of different religions. That's the ideal way for humanity to exist. But when you're dealing with a fundamentalist group of individuals who will not tolerate your existence and who wants to wipe you out and take over the world, so one has to be aware and awake and deal with that reality. And so that's the situation now in Israel, the situation in Europe, and the situation in the world. Okay, so let's move on to more positive things. Um, let's uh, end off with a beautiful lesson we learn from the great Sarah Imeno. Sarah, uh, this week's parsha is called Chaye Sarah. And we learn um, Sefer Bereshis, the book of Genesis, deals with the greatest human beings that ever walked the face of the earth. And those I'm referring to are matriarchs and our patriarchs. Um, the matriarchs being Sarif, Gorocho, Velea, and the patriarchs being Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So now we're in the Pashas at the beginning of the matriarchs and patriarchs, and, and this week's Pasha deals with the death of Sarah Imen. She passes away at the age of 127 years. And at the end of the Pasha, the Torah tells us that Abraham asks um, his, his trusted and loyal servant, Eliezer, to go and find a wife for his son Yitzchak. And the Torah tells us about what happened and how events transpired and how um, Eliezer found Rivka and he negotiated with her family and they agreed that she should marry Yitzchak. And it says that um, the, the Torah tells us in Perikhaf Dalad, Pasuk, Samak Zayin, chapter 24, verse 67, that Yitzchak brought Rivka into his tent, into Sarah's tent, Imo, his mother, and he took Rivka and he, as a wife, and he loved her, and he was comforted 
after the death of his mother. So it's very interesting, uh, the very powerful Jewish teaching that love comes after giving, doesn't come before. The romance is not real. The original um, romance of the relationship is just a gift to see how beautiful this union can be. The real love comes after being married, after the hard work of giving to one another. First we give and then we love, and not the other way around. When it's the other way around, and we don't give, and we expect to have love, so that's an unrealistic expectation, and often leads to much disappointment in relationships. So Rashi speaks on that, and he says that Yitzhak brought Rivka into his mother's tent. So Rashi says, She followed the model of his mother Sarah. When Sarah was alive, the candles that she lit on Ere Shabbos, they miraculously burnt the whole week until the next Shabbos. And there was blessing found in her dough. It didn't go stale. The bread that she baked. And there was a cloud that was upon the tent that never left the tent. When Sarah died, these three things stopped happening. The candle went out, the bread became stale, and the cloud was no longer resting upon the tent. And the Midrash and Breshish Rabbah says that when, when Rivka entered into the tent of Sarah, so then um, all of these things returned, and Yitzchak was now comforted of the death of his mother. So it's very interesting to look at what these things were, what they represented in the life of Sarah, and how she managed to live that way. We will do that when we return in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Discussing the three incredible miracles that took place in the tent of Sarah, um, the Ramban says in his introduction to Sefer Shmois, to the book of, of Exodus, that the building of the Mishkan, the building of the sanctuary, which was the um, the temple, you know, was at first a mobile temple and then was established by King Solomon in Jerusalem um, in the year 957 of the Common Era, before the Common Era. So the the Ramban says the key to the Mishkan was emulating the way the Avos and Imams lived. The way the patriarchs and matriarchs lived is they brought God's presence into the world. They were chariots to the Shechina. They were ambassadors to God, to God's presence in the world. And the building of the Mishkan, the building of the sanctuary and the temple was an attempt, was a continuation of bringing God's presence into the world through the Jewish people which emulated the lives of the Avos and Imams. So Sefer Bereshis was how the Avos and Imams lived on this very high spiritual level. Sefer Shmois is how the Jewish people could live on that same level, but they needed the help of the Mishkan, they needed the sanctuary in order to, to do so. And we see that these three miracles that happened in Sarah's tent, that the, it was a ner dolak, the candle burnt, and that the Isa, the dough, never went stale, and that the Anan, the, the cloud was kashur, was connected to the tent, they represent the vitality of Sarah. That her life, it says, there's a hint to that in the beginning of the Pasha, that it says, 
When she was 100, she was like 20. When she was 20, she was like 7. That energy, that vitality, that life was ever present in her. And it's the same with Abraham. It says with regards to Abraham, that Abraham, Abraham, Zakin, Babayam, Abraham was reached in old age, but he came with these days. The Zohar says that he, every day, Abraham saw the beauty and the opportunity and the gift of that day, and he didn't lose any days. When he reached an old age, he had all those days with him. So how did they do that? How did Abraham and Sarah live a life when they didn't get old, spiritually speaking? Where they didn't become jaded, and they didn't become complacent, and they didn't become live a life of boring routine, but they had a vitality and an energy and an enthusiasm throughout their life. And that's how they reached these great spiritual hearts. How did they do it? So the way they did it was they recognized the opportunity and the uniqueness of each moment. As we say in Davening and Shachros in the morning, that Hashem renews in His greatness, in His goodness, in His kindness, um, every moment of creation every day. In other words, every moment is a new moment. Hashem is recreating every moment. The energy and the existence of the world is only because of Hashem's input at every second, at every millisecond, every moment. Abraham and Sarah knew that secret, and they knew that there's no two moments that are alike. There's no repeat of time. Each moment of the present is unique, is different. We're going through different experiences. We're going through different circumstances. We're going through different challenges. Our mindset is different. Every single day is special and unique, and there's an opportunity every day to mine the gold, the spiritual gems, there's spiritual minerals that are buried in each moment of time. And it's our responsibility, it's our purpose, it's our mission to mine those gems at every moment. And to see, not to be asleep and to be like an animal that just follows our instincts and pursues our uh, the next pleasure that's, that we, we're following um, with our insatiable drive for power and pleasure. But rather we switched on to the opportunity of every moment spiritually. And we're able to mine those spiritual gems out of each moment. That's the purpose of life and that's the great example of Avram and Sarah. They were able to do that every moment of their life. That's what the Torah is telling us. And that's our goal is to be the same. Is to, as the Midrash says, when are we going to reach the deeds of our, of our, of our matriarchs and patriarchs that we're supposed to see the opportunity in every moment and rise above our lower self and and take the higher road, which is our neshama, which is our soul, which is our intellect, and behave with self-control and do what is right spiritually in every moment. That's the goal of life, and that's what it means. Abraham, Zakah, and Baba Yami came with his day. That was the secret of the vitality of Sarah, and that is the purpose of our existence. So please, God, we should be successful in mining those gems and having self-control, in letting our neshama be in control of our body, our soul, being above in control of our lowly body and reaching the great spiritual hearts that we all have the potential to reach. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.